Thanks. Give me a seat. Hey, good morning. I want to welcome everybody to Southman. So glad you're here today. I'm going to just start off with a quick question survey. How many of you right now think that daylight savings time is about the stupidest idea anybody ever had, right? <laughs> At least for one day, right? I'm going to make a deal with you this morning. If you don't fall asleep during this sermon, I won't either, all right? Is that a deal? <laughs> so uh, we're in this together. Acts 13 is where we are. If you get your Bibles open, uh, we're going to dig in. It's 52 verses. We're going to read every one of them as we work our way through. And as we get started, I want to ask this question to get you thinking. What was your most memorable road trip? Can you think of it? Does it come to mind? Well, for my family, it was actually a 3,600-mile trip that we took almost 15 years ago when we moved as a family from uh, our home in our Chicago suburb here to Tracy uh, to, to live here and serve here with you. And if... Uh, any of you know your geography, you might recognize right off the bat that it's only about 2,100 miles to make that trip. Well, we took the long way. Uh, we actually traced the Lewis and Clark Trail through nine different states. We followed the Missouri River. We went all the way up almost to Canada. We came across the northern Rocky Mountains and uh, ended up um, near uh, the, the coast in Oregon. Uh, four kids... One crazy yellow lab in a minivan for one week, 3,600 miles. We did it once. We did it once. Well, you know, you never know what's going to happen when you hit the road, right? When you travel. Uh, Someone once said, uh, when you're traveling, you should lay out all your clothes and all your money and then take half your clothes and take twice your money. And that's pretty true, right? Because travel usually costs more than we thought, and not just in terms of money. We're going to see today in Acts 13 that Paul is hitting the road on this first missionary journey. And he's going to deal with more than just flight delays or car breakdowns. He's going to face open hostility from some people. He's going to face some hard travel trails over mountains. He's going to face danger from bandits. And this chapter is going to show us a truth that we actually see many times in the Bible, and it's this. Reaching people with the gospel won't happen apart from personal sacrifice. Now, just to keep our frame of reference as we journey through the book of Acts, you need to know that this chapter reflects a very important shift in the narrative that Luke gives us. Because up until this point, the gospel has been spreading mostly as Christ followers get scattered from their homes by persecution. In other words, they're not going anywhere with the gospel on their own, but persecution is forcing them to leave. And then as they leave, they take the gospel with them. But in Acts 13, what we see is that this church in Antioch, for the first time, is intentionally sending missionaries out. Well, let's look at verses 1 through 3 as we dive in. Luke writes, In the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now just a couple of things to point out as we jump into this chapter. Don't pass over, don't miss the fact that this Antioch church was a multi cultural church, a very diverse place. This was a church that reflected the city in which they were sharing the gospel. Their leadership, we see it there, reflected several kinds of diversity. Uh, Barnabas, we've already learned, was a Greek-speaking Jew from the island of Cyprus. Uh, Simeon was called Niger. This name means either dark or black. Most scholars believe he was from somewhere in Africa. Uh, Lucius uh, is a man who came from Cyrene, which is in North Africa. Uh, Menaean was likely a wealthy man. We, we know that he was probably part of the royal family of Herod the Tetrarch. And then there was Saul. Saul was a Jewish Christ follower who is from Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey today. And he would have added this kind of academic intellectual flavor to the mix. So put together, these men reflect the diversity of the church. Uh, this church which is in this very diverse, very urban, world-class city. Luke tells us that this church, together, they were worshiping and they were fasting. They were seeking God's direction. And while they were doing this, 
the Holy Spirit spoke, and he told them that they were to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that he had called them to. And so the church obeyed, and so they, they went. Luke wants us to be very clear that this first missionary journey came at God's command. Now, we're going to see three stops on this journey in, in chapter 13, and I want to draw three lessons from those stops, three things that we can expect uh, when we go out with the gospel. I want to show you a map, if you're kind of a visual person, just to give you a frame of reference. Uh, we've seen some of this before, but here's, here's the trip as it's going to unfold for us, starting in Antioch there on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, sailing a short distance across uh, the ocean to the island of Cyprus, spending some time there, and then crossing again to get into uh, Asia Minor for a couple of stops there. This is where they're going to be heading as we work our way through this, this chapter. Uh, now, just so you know, next week, Acts 14, they're going to finish the journey. They're going to start back. And so if you want to hear the whole story of the whole journey, you've got to come back uh, next week for the rest of the trip. Now, somebody might think, well, this is a good chapter for, you know, missionaries, for people who cross cultures and language barriers to share the gospel. But I want to point out today that this chapter is also for people like us who just need to cross the street to share the gospel. There are some lessons that we can learn today. And so here's the first uh, lesson, this first expectation. You can write this down in your message notes. Number one, expect different responses to the gospel. Now Luke writes these words in verses 4 through 7. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. So Luke is again reminding us the Holy Spirit is in charge of this trip. And it, it tells us we need always God's guidance through his Holy Spirit to do Jesus' mission. We cannot be a sent people in our own strength. So they get on a, on a ship and they sail just about 60 miles west. They get to the island of Cyprus. They stop at the first port city there, Salamis. And again, remember, this is home territory for Barnabas. He's a native of Cyprus. And they start by proclaiming God's word in the local Jewish synagogues. As you read through Acts, and you probably already know this, some of you, this was a part of Paul's missionary strategy. Paul would go to the synagogues first because this was a natural place to start. He could talk to people who already had a framework, a context. They already believed the scriptures, though they hadn't accepted Jesus as Messiah. But Paul also went for another reason. As he said in Romans 1.16, he believed that he had an obligation to preach the gospel to the Jews first. So even though he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, Paul always kept a heart to reach his own people. Uh, Luke mentions uh, that someone named John was there to help them. Uh, we know from Colossians 4 that John, also called John Mark, was the cousin of Barnabas. And that means since Barnabas was from Cyprus, it was likely that John Mark also had family on the island. Verses 6 and 7. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. And there they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. And in these two verses, we see our first response to the gospel, and it's this. Some people will be open to God's word. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they are teaching and witnessing their way across the 90-mile width of this island of Cyprus. They get uh, to the capital, which is Paphos, and there they encounter two men, a Jewish man named Bar-Jesus, and the Gentile governor of the whole island, whose name was Sergius Paulus. And Luke says he was an intelligent man. Now, Bar-Jesus would have been like a court wizard. He was an advisor to the governor. And Romans in this time, they placed great weight on omens and divinations. And on top of that, they thought that the Jewish people had like inside information on spiritual matters. But Bar-Jesus was a guy who was in touch with dark powers, he was a man of the occult. Acts is showing us a lot about who does and who doesn't respond to the gospel. And you might think coming into this that the people who already knew the Old Testament scriptures would be responsive. But what we see in Acts so often is that the people who know God's word already are the ones who run the Christ followers out of town because they don't want the gospel. 
And similarly today in the 21st century, some of us might think that an intelligent person, they're not going to respond to the gospel because today it seems like so many people uh, who are academics and intellectuals have disdain for Jesus' teachings. But that's not true of everyone. These verses are just reminding us the gospel is for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are, rich or poor, educated or uneducated. In fact, next week in Acts 14, uh, we're going to run into a people called the Lycaonians, and they are illiterate. Uh, Paul doesn't even recognize their dialect, and he's going to share the gospel with them. See, the gospel is for all of us. Whatever class, whatever race, doesn't matter. And this wealthy, powerful, intelligent man, Sergius Paulus, he's open. Luke writes in verse 7 that he sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. And we often find ourselves thinking that no one wants to listen. Well, here's a man who's probably fed up with the idolatry of Cyprus. He has found that Bar-Jesus is just not feeding his soul. He wants more. Maybe he's asking questions like, what's the meaning of life? Or what do I do with this guilt that I feel? And so this scene is, is so powerful. Barnabas and Saul are basically nobodies, and yet they find themselves standing in front of this powerful man, speaking the good news to his heart. Paul is going to write later on in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, that the conversion of powerful people is rare. But here, here in Paphos, we see a powerful man who finds himself attracted to the word. And this should encourage us today to share the gospel. Friends, listen to me. There are Sergius Paulus's out there for each one of us. People who are ready to hear. They're open. We just need to be ready and available to share. So are you getting involved in people's lives? Are you praying for open doors? So you never, you never know who God's going to direct you to, and they're going to listen. They're going to listen to the gospel. But having said that, we have to be realistic Because in verses 8 through 12, we see a second thing. Some people will oppose God's word. See, for every Sergius Paulus, there's probably going to be a Bar-Jesus or two. Now, Bar-Jesus, his name means son of Jesus or son of the Savior, but he's anything but that. We meet him in verse 8 where Luke writes, But Elimus the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Why? Well, Paul is hitting this guy in two particular idle spots, pride and materialism. Why do people reject God's word? Well, it's usually these two reasons. See, this guy doesn't want to admit that he's wrong. That's pride. There are many people who just arrogantly refuse to admit that they are wrong because of their pride. And then this guy, uh, he was dependent on Sergius Paulus for his livelihood. That's materialism. You see, if Paul is right, he's out of a job. How many people don't want to follow Jesus because following Jesus would mean they would have to turn from the kind of life that they are living? Paul also says that this man is full of the devil, which reminds us that this is spiritual warfare that's going on whenever we share the gospel. Notice verse 9. Luke says, Then Saul, who was also called Paul, and just need to point out from this point on, He's going to be referred to as Paul almost exclusively because uh, Paul is Saul's Roman name. And since he's going to be preaching mostly in Greco-Roman territory, it just makes sense for people to call him Paul. And we're seeing here how Paul shifts very easily from one culture to the next to make the gospel known. Also, I want you to notice from this point forward, he's going to be mentioned first or he's going to be mentioned alone, which indicates he becomes the team leader. So we have been reading about Barnabas and Saul. Now it's going to become Paul and Barnabas. Uh, He says, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, he looks straight at Elimus and said, verse 10, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now, I want to be real clear. This is not my recommended method of sharing the gospel with your friends and family, okay? (laughs) You need to keep in mind that this is a unique judgment that God is pronouncing through Paul. I mean, just notice the contrast here. Paul's full of the Spirit. Elimus is full of the devil. Paul is telling people how to be righteous. 
This guy is an enemy of righteousness. Paul is speaking truth. He's full of deceit. Paul's declaring the ways of the Lord. He's perverting the ways of the Lord. You, you might find yourself saying, oh, Paul's not being really nice. There's a couple things to keep in mind. You see, Bar-Jesus is a stumbling block to Sergius Paulus. And Paul knows that eternity is a big deal. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, if you hinder a child from coming to faith, you might as well just tie a millstone around your neck and throw the stone in the sea. That's what Jesus said. He's not being harsh. He's being loving. And Paul here is being loving. He cares about Sergius Paulus. This also reminds us that the Holy Spirit is not just a spirit of love, but also of truth. And he's, Paul is confronting this man with truth. Notice the consequences, verse 11. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. So this punishment fits. And it's kind of interesting because what happened to Saul, who's now named Paul, just a short time before in, in terms of Acts, the same thing happened to him. He was blinded. See, Bar-Jesus is trying to make darkness light, and so now he is in utter darkness, and probably just for a short time. It's not permanent blindness. This is just a picture of everyone who refuses to bow the knee to Jesus. Jesus said, you reject me, and you will be cast into utter darkness. Luke continues, immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And so we're just reminded eternal life is serious business. And there's just a, there's a pattern here that I want you to pick up on that will often kind of uh, reflect what happens as you interact with people. It's just good to keep it in mind. Uh, first of all, remember this, opposition is normal. You've been hearing me say this. We keep bringing it up because it keeps coming up in the text. We need to be reminded that sharing the gospel is spiritual warfare. See, in today's world, Christ followers will be oppressed not only by Islamic terrorists, but sometimes by secularists in universities and in the media, and then sometimes by people who just reject you personally on your block. Why? Because there will always be the spirit of the evil one in a culture. And anytime we speak gospel truth, there's going to be someone who opposes that. But secondly, as we remember that God is always with us, second, we should speak boldly anyway. Speak boldly anyway. Now, as I already said, I don't think God's going to usually lead us to talk to people like Paul talked to Elimus. But we should always make the truth clear. We need to do this because we live in a day, I hope you recognize this, where our culture thinks that there is one ultimate virtue, and that virtue is tolerance. That virtue means you're to be nice to everybody no matter what. You're never supposed to disagree with everyone. It's kind of interesting, I think, that everyone is supposed to be tolerant about everything except for Christian teaching. We don't really have tolerance for that. See, the gospel reminds us that people who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus will suffer terrifying consequences. And it is an act of love for us to share the truth. Paul is reminding us to be bold in our tolerant postmodern world. And then the third thing to remember, this pattern, is God always wins. <laughs> is that good news? God always wins. God's always greater than anything that will come against us. There is no power greater than God, and God is with us so we can witness boldly. We can trust in God's power to overcome obstacles and to open hearts to the gospel. The third response we see here is in verse 12. Some people will embrace the word. Some people will embrace God's word. Verse 12 says, When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So there's this contrast. The darkness of judgment comes down on bar Jesus. The light of salvation bursts out on this Gentile ruler, Sergius Paulus. He's the first convert on the mission trip. And we might be surprised as we share the gospel at who says yes. Keep that in mind. Some of you, your Sergius Paulus is just waiting for you to share. Anybody have anybody come into mind who that might be for you? Expect different responses to the gospel, but know that God is at work and be bold. That's what this is teaching us. So that's the first stop. Second stop is in a city called Perga. And here's what we should expect from this, as the second stop. Expect relational 
and physical challenges. Verses 13 and 14 say, From Paphos, Paul and his companions, notice where's Barnabas, it's just Paul and the guys with him, sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian and Antioch. So the mission team leaves the island of Cyprus. They sail across the Mediterranean Sea up north to where Asia Minor is, modern-day Turkey. They come uh, to this city called Perga. It's in the region of Pamphylia, present-day Turkey. Perga is about 12 miles inland. It's between the Taurus Mountains and the, the Mediterranean Sea. Now, Luke doesn't say a lot about this stop, so I'm not going to either. He just says John left them to return to Jerusalem. And so the question is, why? Why did John leave? The short answer is, we don't know. Just write that down. We don't know. (laughs) The Bible doesn't tell us everything. There are some theories. Uh, We know that uh, that John Mark's mom lived in Jerusalem, so it's possible that he was kind of a mama's boy and he just wanted to go home. <laughs> Some people uh, speculate that he was afraid to cross the mountain with all the dangers that were there. Some people think maybe he didn't like the leadership shift that had just taken place from Barnabas to Paul. Maybe he got sick. Some people think that there was a lot of malaria that was around Pamphylia. There were some marshy lowlands there. We, we don't really know. That's the answer. The only real indication we have is actually a couple chapters farther in Acts 15. And we're going to get there a few weeks from now. But in this second missionary journey that we'll read about at the end of Acts 15, it's about to start. And Barnabas, the encourager, wants to take Mark on the second missionary journey. But Paul, who, as far as we can tell, does not seem to have the gift of mercy, Paul says no. He doesn't think it's a good idea. He thinks it's a bad idea because John Mark had deserted them before. And so we know from Acts 15, 38, that that Paul saw Mark's desertion as unjustified and illegitimate. This is just my opinion. I think the best speculation is that he got homesick or that he was afraid. The trip was hard. And so he came to a point where he wanted to quit. Now, here's the application for us. Don't miss that this team, I mean, could you have two better leaders, Paul and Barnabas? But this team was rocked by a relational conflict, and we're going to experience conflicts in the work of God in church here too. And while we don't want them ever, it helps to remember that they come, and even people like Paul and Barnabas face them as well. We also know from the bigger picture of the New Testament that Conflict doesn't have to end in failure because there's good news about Mark. He finished well. In fact, this young man who abandons them, John Mark, ends up writing the gospel of Mark. That's a pretty good thing to put on your resume. Amen? Amen. Yeah, I wrote a gospel. Um, And then we know that when Paul writes his final letter, the last one he wrote shortly before he was executed, it's 2 Timothy in chapter 4, verse 11. Paul says this. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. That's so amazing. This beautiful picture of restoration that tells us failure isn't final. Conflict may happen, but in God's family, restoration, reconciliation is always possible. So there's relational conflict, but we also see kind of embedded in these verses There's physical challenges that can be part of making the gospel known. Luke just tells us that the trip, the team took this trip from Perga to Pisidian Antioch. He doesn't tell us what that involved, but it was a very difficult trip. In fact, here's what one scholar writes to help us imagine it. Antioch lay some 100 miles to the north across the Taurus mountain range. The route was barren, often flooded by swollen mountain streams, and notorious for its bandits, which even the Romans had difficulty bringing under control. Antioch itself was in the highlands, some 3,600 feet above sea level. This just reminds us, ministry is not for the faint of heart. Advancing the gospel always is going to cost us. It is rarely glamorous. And so we need to be faithful. We need to remember that there will be challenges of various kinds as we are doing what God's called us to do, even when we're obeying him. That brings us to the third expectation. Go ahead and write this down. Expect God to open doors for sharing the gospel. 
So they get to their third stop. It is another city named Antioch. It's not uh, the Antioch that we have begun in. This is uh, uh, what Luke refers to as Pisidian Antioch, and it is in the Roman province of Galatia. This was an influential uh, political and commercial city. We know that many Jewish people lived there. And here's how Luke opens up this story of this stop, verses 14 and 15. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word or a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. So we think that probably what happened is they arrived in Pisidian Antioch. They spent a few days probably going around the city, getting to know some people, meeting some folks. And as this happened, word would have gotten out that Paul was a student of the great rabbi Gamaliel. That means he's kind of a rock star in the Jewish world. And so they invite them to come to the synagogue. Now, on the Sabbath, synagogue services always would include, among other things, some readings from the Old Testament scriptures. This would then be followed by what we would today call a sermon or a message where these scripture readings were explained and and applied. And on this Sabbath, the synagogue rulers invited them to preach. And it was a very common thing to do to have a visiting rabbi come by. You know, I was just thinking this morning, it would be awesome if on the first Sunday of Daylight Savings Time there was someone else (laughs) I could just say, Paul, would you like to deliver the message today? It's kind of like that, you know. uh, The rabbis there in the synagogue, they're probably ready for a rest, a break, and they ask Paul if he'll speak. And anybody want to guess, is Paul ready for this moment? Yes, Paul is ready for this moment. And we also need to be ready for our moments. And what we're going to see now, starting in verse 16, is Paul's message. And what Paul does is he basically unpacks the, the big storyline of the law and the prophets, the, the old, whole Old Testament. It's a very simple message, actually. I'm going to uh, fly through it, and you can read uh, through it more slowly later. There's basically one point in this message, and here it is. Write this down. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. And in Jesus, you can find forgiveness and freedom. That's what Paul's going to talk about. You see, now, you're going to notice Paul is talking to people who already understand the Old Testament Scriptures, but they don't know how it fits together. That may be some of you today. You know some stories from the Bible, but you don't know the big story of the Bible. Here's something else that Paul teaches us. Very important. We need to proclaim Christ in a way that connects with our audience. We're going to see this unfold more and more as we go through Acts. But when Paul goes to this Jewish crowd, you'll notice that he's going to talk about Moses and about David and about the temple and about the law. Why? Because they already know about these things. If you read Acts 14, which we'll study next week, in Lystra, he's going to encounter people who don't know the Bible. And so he doesn't start with the Bible. Paul will start in Lystra with what the people see around them in creation. He's going to do the same thing in Acts 17 when he gets to Athens. And it's going to be a little different there because in Athens, he's talking to intellectuals. He's talking to philosophers. And so he's going to refer uh, to some of their more lofty authors and writers. He's connecting with them. In other words, Paul knows his audiences well enough to know where to start. You could describe it this way. Paul is always making a point of contact with people. He finds that point of contact and he makes that point of contact. But then Paul also does another thing that's important. Paul also gets to a point of conflict where he shows the people that he's connecting with, contacting, that what they believe, how what they believe collides with the gospel. And this is a very great model for us to keep in mind as we try to share with our friends and neighbors. We need to connect with people where they are, make that point of contact, but we're always going to have to bring the gospel in to show this point of conflict with how the gospel contradicts and conflicts with what people apart from God believe. Uh, Missiologists call this contextualization, and it just reminds us sharing faith is not a one-size-fits-all thing. Uh, Maybe you can think about it this way. The way you might talk to a 60-year-old grandma who went to Sunday school when she was a little girl is different from the way you would talk to your Muslim neighbor. Does that make sense? 
See, we, we need to know both the gospel and people. We need to know the gospel. We need to know people. And the only way to get to know people, you may want to write this down, is to spend time with them, to get involved with their lives. Um, this will be kind of new information for some of us, but to actually share the gospel, you have to actually talk to real human beings. Should I repeat that? You know, one of the problems in our kind of social media culture is that we are spending so much time talking at one another that many people, this has really been proved in a lot of research, actually, many people in our culture are getting demonstrably worse at having real life, actual conversations with real people. And even some of us may be forgetting how to do this. And Paul is just a good model for us. He knows culture. He understands how people think and live. He makes this point of contact with them. He, he, he shares the gospel. That gospel doesn't change. It's always the same. But he's flexible in how he approaches them. And here he starts with the Bible because he's talking to a Jewish audience. Now, Paul's message has three parts. And uh, there's an introduction, there's proclamation, and there's application. And I'll give you uh, some of, about that so you can kind of see the frame as we're working through it. But Paul's introduction is from verses 16 to 25. Let me read those verses. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Verse 23. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, what I want you to see in this introduction, most of all, is how God is the subject of nearly every verb. Paul just keeps saying, God does this, God does that. These verses are saturated with God. There's 16 times here, Paul states that God is active in history, that history is going somewhere, and that history culminates in God's Son, Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded God controls history. None of these events are random. Please hear me. God doesn't do random. And maybe some of you need to hear that this morning. God does not do random. God is sovereign over all things. Now, Paul recounts their history to establish this point of contact. And he brings this history quickly to a focus on one person, David, their ideal king, and then from David, he rapidly jumps to Jesus because Jesus is the point. You know, if you're new to the Bible, the, you might think of it this way. In the Old Testament, God makes promises. In the New Testament, God keeps his promises. And the Old Testament gave the promise of a king who would sit on the throne. Who is that king? Paul says his name is Jesus. Jesus is the great son of David. So this is Paul's introduction. He's introducing these people to Jesus. Now, next comes Paul's proclamation uh, in verses 26 to 37. And the, the content of his message, the main content is he is proclaiming the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, he shows them after pointing them to Jesus in these verses, verse 26 to 37, that the Old Testament that they believe in culminates in this person named Jesus, and he gives them proof. Verse 26 and following. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. 
though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Is that good news? And then many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. So what Paul is saying to this Jewish audience is the very people who knew the scriptures best missed the point of the scriptures. They missed Jesus. They were reading scriptures every week in this synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. You know, this can happen anywhere. It can happen even right here at Southwinds. Hearing the scriptures and missing the message, missing the point. These people in Jerusalem and their rulers, Paul says, they didn't recognize Jesus. And even though they didn't find any guilt in him, they still condemned him. They thought he was an imposter, not who he claimed to be. And so they executed him. And in their minds, his crucifixion proved that he was an imposter because the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy says that God puts a curse on anyone who hangs on a tree. That's what they thought. But Paul says God proved them wrong by Jesus' resurrection. In raising Jesus from the dead, Paul says God confirmed Jesus' identity as the Messiah. In other words, resurrection is verification. You see, how do we know that Jesus really is the Messiah? If someone asks you, how do you know that Jesus is the Son of God like you say he is? Here's your answer. You just tell them because he's alive. Do you understand? Because he's been raised from the dead, that's how we know Jesus is alive. That proves that everything he claimed about himself was true. Yeah, this reminds us that everything in the universe pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem. It is the resurrection that proves that what Jesus did on the cross, dying for sins, actually was sufficient. If you ever wonder, is his death enough to forgive my sins? The answer is yes. Why? Because of the resurrection. So Paul is proclaiming the resurrection And he does this in two ways. He he first appeals to eyewitnesses, and then he appeals to the scriptures. And you you may have noticed already we read verse 31. That's where he mentions eyewitnesses. And now in verses 32 to 37, he appeals to the scriptures. He, He says, we tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere. You will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Here's what Paul is doing. He's saying it's right there. The proof is in your own scriptures, which you read every week. Now, Paul appeals to three Old Testament texts in Psalm 2 and Isaiah 55 and in Psalm 16. I don't have time to explain these uh, verses in depth because you guys just can't listen fast enough. That's the problem. So you're going to have to study them yourselves. But here's what he's saying. This is his point. He he is saying fulfilled prophecy is verification. Fulfilled prophecy is verification. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. That shows he is Messiah. And part of what Paul is pointing out is the people who most opposed Jesus made sure that the prophecies got fulfilled. They carried out God's will. That's how sovereign God is. Amen? It's just amazing. Now, this is Paul's sermon. It just goes straight to Jesus. Every good sermon should. Paul heads straight to the cross, straight to the resurrection. And what do you do with this? What does it mean for our lives? This is the third part, application. Uh, The promise of forgiveness and justification. We see this in verses 38 through 41. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. 
Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. This is what Paul is saying in effect. Here's the good news of the gospel. There's two benefits. Benefit number one, God forgives your sins through Jesus. Benefit number two, God justifies you, declares you righteous through Jesus. This is what we receive in the gospel. God cleanses us of our sins and God makes us righteous in Christ, as righteous as Christ. He sees us through Jesus. We stand justified, made righteous before God because of the work of another. That is what Paul is preaching to this people. And I want to say to you today, this is the very best news in all the world. Because the biggest question anyone faces is, what do I do with my guilt? It's the question everyone asks. It's the question that tears thousands and millions of lives apart because people don't know how to answer it. People will try anything, have you noticed, to try to get rid of the guilt that they feel to deal with their unsettled consciousness. It is so sad. They will try therapy and they will try exercise and diets and medicine, countless other remedies, but you cannot exercise your guilt away. You cannot medicate or drink it away. Some people will try to suppress their guilt and just pretend it's not real, it's not there. That never works, not for long. Some people will try to make up for their guilt by religious performance, and that is often what happens in church settings. Maybe that's someone here right now. If you do that, I want to tell you, it's only going to lead in two directions, pride or despair. You're going to succeed here and there, and you're going to feel puffed up with pride, but ultimately, you're going to fail, and you're going to fall, and you're going to be despairing. Historically, some religious types practice self-mutilation to deal with guilt, physically whipping themselves in a hopeless attempt to make atonement for their sin. This goes on all around the world in so many different religions. Brennan Manning, in his book, Abba's Child, uh, described his former life as he tried to deal with this guilt. He said this, self-flagellation has a personal history with me When I was 23 years old and a novice in the Franciscan order in Washington, D.C., the order practiced an ancient spiritual discipline on the Friday nights of Lent. A designated cleric stood flat-footed beside the stairwell on the first floor, slowly and loudly reciting Psalm 51 in Latin, a song of repentance. Meanwhile, the rest of us entered our cells on the second floor, clutching a new-shaped instrument of torture measuring 12 inches long. It was a coiled telephone wire. Throughout the duration of the psalm, we whipped our backs and buttocks to extinguish the fires of lust. I flayed away with such reckless abandon that I raised blood blisters on my back. The following day in the showers, a cleric took one look at my body and reported my condition to the novice master who reprimanded me for my intemperate zeal. Truth to tell, I was trying desperately to make myself pleasing to God. God has provided only one solution for the problem of guilt. We must trust in Jesus, Jesus alone. See, you don't have to whip yourself because he was whipped for you. You don't have to shed your blood because Jesus shed his blood. Paul is just saying total forgiveness, total justification comes from this one hanging on a tree, bearing our curse. And so Jesus can say, because he died and was raised from the dead, he can say to all of us, come, weary sinners. Come, guilt-laden sinners. Come, repentant adulterer. Come, sex offender. Come, drug addict. Come, self-righteous legalist. Come, turn from your sins. Receive forgiveness. Hear those words. You are forgiven. Let Jesus say to you, as Paul would write in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
I want you to remember, that is the Apostle Paul who writes those words. Paul, the murderer. See, you really can have total forgiveness, total freedom. You really can exchange condemnation for justification. And you can't earn it. You can't earn it. You can only receive it. It only comes through faith. We give Jesus all the weight of our guilt and sin and shame. And he exchanges that. He gives us his righteousness, his forgiveness, his freedom. See, this is what Paul is preaching in that synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And it is awesome. So awesome. In verse 41, Paul adds a warning for all who would scoff, who would reject the gospel. He quotes the prophet Habakkuk, and he says, in effect, don't set this matter aside. This is a matter of eternal life or eternal judgment. And he's just warning against hardness of heart that keeps people from believing the message. He says, don't be a cynic. Don't presume on another breath. And that's the sermon. Now, in verses 42 to 52, we see really what we saw at the beginning of this chapter, these different responses to the gospel that we can expect. Let me read through these verses very quickly. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So there's one group that wanted to hear more. And that may be someone here. That may be you. You just need to keep coming. It it takes time. Just keep coming. Just keep listening. Just keep asking. Just keep praying. There was another group, Luke says, that followed Paul and Barnabas. This doesn't just mean physically. It's about spiritual following. These are new disciples. We know this because Luke says they urged them to continue in the grace of God. So they believed, and they're now to follow. And then in verse 44, we see a third response, which is outright hostility. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. So sadly, the people who knew the Bible best became the most hostile. And when they didn't have an argument to respond to Paul, they just attacked the messengers. Verse 46 Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul says, you do not want to listen, and therefore you are pronouncing your own judgment. Verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. And honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now this is an amazing statement about God's election. About predestination. And Luke wants the reader to know. God did not make a mistake here. When the Jews didn't believe. God did not wring his hands and say. What do I do now? Luke says he had a plan before the foundation of the world. He is working his salvation out to the ends of the earth. And we're reminded here that in salvation always, God's initiative comes first, is preeminent. And this is good news. This gives us confidence, friends, as we share the gospel. When you tell someone about Jesus, you can know that God is already at work in your lives. Don't ever find yourself thinking that you get to someone before God gets to them. He's already there. He's already speaking. His spirit is already at work. God works even in the face of opposition. Verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing. That's always bad news. And the leading men of the city, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet and protested against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. So when we hit the road, remember, God always wins in the end. His word spreads. 
even when there is opposition, even when people run us off, even when we face persecution, even if our friends or our family won't listen. See, like Paul and Barnabas, we can move on to the next person or the next place where God will keep on opening doors for us to share the gospel. And we can move on filled with joy, filled with the Holy Spirit. Two final words. If you are not a Christ follower, I want to remind you, this passage calls you today to repent and believe. Even if you know all these Bible stories, even if you've heard this passage before, if you've not personally turned from your sins and personally placed your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, that's what you need to do today. And then for Christ followers, this story asks us, challenges us, can we explain the story of the Bible? Are we able to do that? And will we be able to do that even when we face opposition This story gives us hope. It gives us confidence because we were reminded that the gospel is greater, is stronger than any opposition forces, than any evil uh, powers that we may face. So expect different responses, expect challenges, and expect God, our great God, to open doors. Will you bow your heads as we pray together? Father God, uh, you call us to go out and to go into our world to share the good news of your love and grace. Lord, we ask you to forgive us today where we have failed to go when you have sent. We pray that you would remind us even now of the people in our lives that your son Jesus died to save, our, our surges policies. We ask you, Father, to open doors and to give us the grace to walk through those doors. Lord, as your people together, we pray right now that many, many in our neighborhoods and many in the places where we work and and many in our families would come to know you as we tell them what you have done for us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. And all God's people together say,